We're live, live pod, live stream. It's 2023, man. We live in the future. Yeah, it is uh, quite a quite a quite a time to be alive. I'm glad we stayed relevant with this whole streaming era thing because I've been seeing all these clips on TikTok and stuff of all these streamers. We're not like that. Like we don't carry the camera around. Like there's there's this one guy. His name's like Fusi. Like Yusuf is his actual name, but he goes by Fusi. And he was like this big YouTube star. Like, I don't know, maybe like five, 10 years ago, I guess, like he came up. And then he kind of got, for whatever reason, like canceled before. I haven't really like figured out why uh, kind of all this drama went down, but he's now come back in a resurgence. And basically, for the last like 30 something days, he decided to stream 24 7. And so he was literally live streaming everywhere. Like he was going around Vegas, going to casinos. He was in LA. He was uh, all over the place. He was on his live stream. And this guy, bro, like straight up built it and built and built it and like had like a straight like mental break on the uh, stream. And people were like, yo, dude, like, please stop. He just like wouldn't stop and kept streaming and streaming. And, uh, I mean, it's been wild, bro. Like watching that, looking at all the streaming culture, looking at the way that people cut clips, like different era, but hey, this is our version of it. Yeah, I mean, we're living in a, you know, when they say virtual reality, we are living in a virtual reality, right? And I was just having this conversation earlier as we move and shift toward this kind of medium where one, everyone wants the camera on them 24 seven. It's like, no, there are moments in life, even within your work life, right? Like people who want to execute, you don't want people listening in. You're working on your craft, you're working on development, you're working on a lot of things like this concept of 24 seven access, I think is really a troubling one. Um, and I also think, you know, the other part of this is that when you don't get to actually feel someone's energy in in their presence you can't get an accurate read of that person you get the mask it's easy to wear a mask on instagram on youtube and create a persona that may or may not be true and you know you find that you know when you're building something you know not everyone is building but if you are building something or you're building a a circle of friends even let's take this outside of business context and you're building these relationships virtually um you're not getting an accurate read of the person that you're dealing with and you find this all the time is that when people actually interact in person they are not the person that you see on social media they are not the persons who you perceive them to be on their instagram feed there's a reality right and and everyone's wearing a mask and it's dangerous um it's creating lots of insecurity lots of mental health issues interesting tidbit and story that i saw when i was you know just browsing was matt stafford's wife talking about how matt stafford is really having trouble relating 
with the players in the in the locker room because there isn't the same sense of camaraderie, locker room camaraderie, where guys are playing ping pong or sitting down playing video games. Immediately after practice, everyone is going straight to their phones and looking at their screens. Uh, and she mentioned that clearly, right? And they're 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 observing what's happening on their their personal Instagram, on their TikToks, on their YouTube. You got Twitter, like. I can't keep up with all of these mediums. Like I, I'm a one medium guy. Like every once in a while I'll jump on Twitter, but like, I, I honestly don't see how people can function within all of these different virtual realities and then function in real reality at the same time. Yeah, bro. I, I couldn't agree more. And I can't believe that that's the case. Like, I feel like one of the worst things is when you're on a team and like literally no one wants to hang out. It's like the worst thing that happens in sports. Yeah, and it's it's becoming more and more the reality. You know, we are trapped within. This is our best friend. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you don't need a best friend. You have your cell phone, right? And and that's you know there 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 is collateral damage for that. And I think you know we we will see the effects of it. Part of the reason that yeah. that AI is so prevalent is because. Human beings are declining and it's, <laughs> we have to hit, acknowledge and admit that, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, it's like you're basically like everyone's been trying to say, well, when will AI surpass humanity? And you've come with the theory that when will humanity <laughs> fall behind AI? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's true. It's I mean, it's it's kind of crazy to to just see how people adapt and like, you know, people talk about like this phrase, like human computer interfacing all the time. Yeah. And like that can go any anywhere from like the user experience of an app to like, you know, devices that are embedded within our body. And I think like what we don't consider, like we talk about like the user experience and how easy something is, but we don't consider like what what it does to our minds, because like the way that we envision the world, like think about just like walking around like physical reality, like you've got a certain experience that you have, your mind goes to certain places, but in the digital realm, it's like a completely different set of experiences. And it's really like a Venn diagram. There's not that much overlap between the two worlds, even though on the surface level, it seems like you're getting similar things out of both. Yeah. And I mean, it's, and if you look at like, you know, we politics as a topic that is, uh, on the front and center of a lot of people's minds. But if you look at these candidates, they essentially are just adjusting to the algorithms that they follow. There is no, they're not human beings. They are literally bots who have essentially programmed based on what their campaigns read on social media and on the digital world. And then they reflect that in their personalities. They don't, they're not real people anymore. You know, they just say what they feel should be heard or what people think they should hear. And that's just one example of the, the, the effects of, of, of the difference between the digital reality and the real world, because you hear what these people say in the real world. If you're, if you're somebody that's not connected to the digital world and you're like, what the fuck is coming out of these people's mouths? But then you go to the digital world and you go to Twitter and you're like, ah, I see there's a lot of fucking batshit crazy people who agree with these thoughts. <laughs> I, I, here's my counterpoint to that i agree with you but i also disagree with you in the sense that i do think it's a positive to create a feedback loop 
that's more rapid between, say, a politician and, and the audience that resonates with them. Now, if that feedback loop encourages a certain type of language, then, you know, just like the people we elect for office, we only have ourselves to blame, right? And I think, like, it's kind of the same thing with media. It's, it's a huge democracy in terms of what kind of content wins and what kind of content we're being exposed to. And so, like, one of the things I've been really thinking about when it comes to, like, what you're talking about when you create these feedback loops and it encourages, like, a behavior that you look at and you're just like, man, like, I don't know if I really feel like that that hits from a value standpoint. I think it just shows you where society's values are. And I think like it's as important to be able to see it like before you couldn't see it so clearly, you know, a lot of this like kind of thought was buried and it, it, in a sense, like for me, I really appreciate that all of this is really out there and visible because we can see who we are. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm testing that theory. I agree. Like, you know, I'm always the person that says I'd rather see who people really are. But I, I'm starting to really be scared of who people really are, you know, and the, the reality is it's like the reason that I thought that is that I didn't realize that people were as as and I'm not going to say people are evil. I'm saying people are are wounded. And when people are wounded, the level of of evil that they're willing to express through anger is very very scary because when i look at twitter i just see a whole bunch of people expressing whatever internal conflict they have onto society and i'm like yeah i would like to see like for example if somebody's racist i would rather know that you're racist than you to conceal it from me and act like you're my friend right that's 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 one thing but i also understand that when there are no checks on it right then it can really lead to imagine if I, if I went on Twitter and I wanted to look up, you know, Indian hate. And I actually read all the tweets of people, you know, demeaning Indian people. It would have an effect on me mentally that would then lead to how I operate in the world. Right. And that's where I'm, I'm fearful of this, like openness of the reality because Yes, people really are wounded and damaged, but that society isn't setting up and we have all these systems in, of power and governance that are just letting this shit unfold. And it's like, where is this going to lead us? That's that's kind of like recently, you know, over probably the last year or two, how I've been thinking about this. I love that everything's out in the open now, but it's also scary how much of what's in the open is really negative. Where do you think V like where do you think it would lead us? Like good good and bad. Like maybe two cases. I mean, I I'll, I'll speak as the United States, you know, the, the 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 level of optimism that existed after World War II through the civil rights movements that there was hope that despite all of the problems that existed in society, people were fighting for change and making impactful change. Now I feel like people just want to fight. And that's what scares me about society now is everybody wants to fight behind a keyboard, but behind a keyboard isn't going to lead to voting rights. It isn't going to lead to better schools. It's not going to lead to a, a, a bridging of the socioeconomic divide that exists. You know what I mean? 
And where I see where I see this country and this world going is a world in which iRobot exists. Not not to that extreme, but I'm saying like people's value to this ecosystem is not going to be the same. It's just not going to be there if you're sitting behind a computer screen and then you're complaining that AI is taking over, but you spend 90% of your day on your phone, on your, on your, on your laptop and on your iPad, what do you think is going to happen? And so that's what, I don't know what the feedback is going to be because there's never been a time where people were irrelevant except for when people didn't exist. And you start to wonder, you know, when you think about, you know, you know, nature and you think about everybody has a role in this ecosystem and that's why they exist from the ant up to the human being. Human beings are really fucking with that. And is, is, and, and that's, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm talking around this answer cause I don't know, but I am expressing the fears that I have. You know, it's, it's, it's super interesting because I think that, I think that there are so many different ways that this situation, like to your point could play out. Like it's really hard to say, you know, is this all for good? Is this all for bad? Is it, is it a mix? Which it probably is. One thing along the lines of, of what you're stating is just that this period of time in history, this is the most opinions any individual has ever had to deal with yep. in their entire life period. So like you go back, like, I don't know. I mean, go back 30 years. Right. And, everyone like just had to interact with the people around them. If you were away from people like, yeah, you could call them you could write them a letter, but that was really it. Like there wasn't really anything else going on that, you know, would, would cause like, for example, a thousand people to come in your DMS and shit on you if they want to, right. If something you say they disagree with. So in some regard that allows us to lift the bottom. It allows us to lift the laggards because isolation keeps people from understanding we're all the same. And then in other ways, it holds some people back because it forces them to get pulled down, knocked down when they're trying to strive for a greater version of themselves, where maybe potentially if we were, you know, again, like, let's not talk about civil rights, but let's just talk about like technology for a second in this example. But like, let's say we were, you know, a hundred years ago, say same societal structure without this technology, a person could, in my view, probably achieve as an individual in their own individual development, you know, maybe more, but then at the same time, we, 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 we couldn't grow as fast as we are today without the resources we all have access to. So there's so much like what I've been, feeling with regards to what you're saying is that there's like this swirling like mass of information and it's like we have so much we don't know what to do with it we don't know how to interact with it i think it could be probably one of the greatest things ever but it's like with all change it's like it has to be really brutal really painful and really uncomfortable and you know i i think like it does bring that question up of like how do we all react when this is over and when we get to like, you know, the new kind of norm balanced society? Cause like 20 years now it's been changing. We've been getting more and more info, different types of interactions, but we're getting to a point of saturation. I think everybody feels that. Yeah, we're getting, we definitely are getting point and to a point of, of saturation, but like there's something, you know, there's one word that comes to mind as I was listening to you and that's choice. 
right? And I think what you were hinting at is that human beings before technology had the power of choice. You know, if you wanted to be educated on something, you actually had to go read a book. You, ha- you couldn't take a shortcut of reading somebody else's 30 character opinion on something. You had to actually choose to develop your own opinions. And the same thing in terms of choice of information and people you want around you and to surround you. You don't have that choice as much anymore. And I think, you know, the, the, the truth is there's always been a, a, a mirror of choice. If you look at society's history and humans history, there's always kind of been a power structure where the people at the top kind of dictated and controlled the actions of the rest of society. You know what I mean? But what's happening now is, as you said, this confusion that people have, people feel like they have the power to express themselves, but at the same time, they're not having to face the consequences, right? Like, and this is an interesting question for you. Do you think a, a Martin Luther King, a Gandhi, or a Jesus Christ even can exist in a society like this? Do you think they would, be, they would be regarded, if they came in present time, 30, 40 years from now, do you think that they would have the societal or cultural impact that they, they've had as a result of them not being ground out and actually having to create the platform and generate the attention and also stand on what they stood for, for people to relate to them um, and have to deal with people in real life. Do you think that that's still a reality that exists when somebody is just tweeting? I I think honestly, like when it comes to that, when it comes to spiritual development, I think we're in the best era ever because there's so much information available. Like, for somebody like me who wants to learn about, say, meditation or spirituality, I've never been able to have such a treasure trove of wisdom from the wisest people in the world. I can watch lectures and snippets from the wisest monks, the wisest educators all over the planet and get a bunch of different perspectives. Like in one hour, I can learn from a monk in a Buddhist temple and watch 20 TikToks about him, plus then watch 10 Sadhguru TikToks and this and that, right? So it's like, there is that ecosystem. But I think at the same time, like Jesus was killed because people didn't believe he was who he was. Gandhi had to starve himself. You know what I'm saying? Like even, even back then, like the, the, the whole, like, you know, people came with the right message and society destroyed them. Like that's the story of the Bible is that if you don't see what's right in front of your face, then you're going to miss this Uh opportunity that we all have to be connected with God and, and to be part of that story and part of that ecosystem. And it's like, to me, it's like human nature maybe hasn't changed too much. Like, but because of the access to resources, I think people who choose to go down that path have an easier time about it. Because if it was 50 years ago, I'd have to get on a boat, go to India, go up to the Himalayas and like put my rest of my life there to get some of the information I can get in 20 minutes. Yeah. I mean, a couple, couple responses um, to what you said. I do agree that there is access, um, but there are not filters, right? There's a lot of disinformation. There's a lot of poor information, even regarding Hinduism that I see regarding, regarding all organized religion. 
And then there are also profiteers and people who are fake. We, we're not going to mention any names, but you and I talk about it all the time. People who use spirituality um, for financial and capitalist gain, like specifically in Buddhism, uh, that's, that's not something that you're supposed to do, right? It's, and it's, it's like that, that mix, you know, why is it the pastor, um, it's fine to tithe to the church, right? But why are there people who have to take the bus to church and the pastor is driving a $120,000 car, right? That, those are kind of the questions that I think are not being asked as much because we're just accepting the information and not necessarily filtering you know, the credibility of the folks that we're hearing from all the time. Um, and then I also think there's confusion, right? It's a lot to filter because there's so much information. And the, and the, and the last thing that I'll say on that is, is you, you had mentioned that, you know, Gandhi died, Martin Luther King died, Jesus died, Malcolm X died, you know, Che Guevara died. Like people who are revolutionaries die. Um, and, 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 you know, you know, one of my favorite things to say is there's always a price to pay. And I feel like human beings now in this digital age, they're not able to recognize what the price is, or they're not facing the consequences of the price of their consequence of their words and actions, or are they willing to accept that they want to be able to express themselves, but don't want to own the consequences of that expression. Yeah, I think that I think that's a fair point. I think, you know, just to add to that, it's like the internet today requires a high level of self-worth because like if you don't have self-worth, you'll just believe everything that's told to you. Yeah. You have to have some semblance of like, okay, I know that I I can decide for myself what I resonate with and what I don't and then from that make your own decisions and have your own value set and all of that. Like it does require a certain level of development to be able to handle all of this well and not have it destroy you from the inside out. So, you know, I agree fundamentally. I think the question is like, does it force that condition? Does it force everybody to a certain level of development? Because you can't sustain otherwise. You'll be too depressed. You'll be too down anxious or or whatever, you know? And I, I think like that's what we're walking into. We're walking into an era where we are going to see if society can continue to handle this or if it's going to continue to lead to things like the the high suicide rates and, you know, all the different uh, mental illnesses and all the different things that are going on in society. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's so funny. I, I just saw an article uh, yesterday um, from Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, who encouraged people to uh, put their phones down. It's like the drug dealer telling somebody not to use drugs, but still, you know, it's like, it is that reality of like, they, they too, he's aware of the consequences of, overuse of his own device um and communicating that message and it's like yes you know it is fully on you like you said it is we're in a time that you have to be more responsible for yourself um than any time that existed before because otherwise you will get lost in this mix and you have to set those standards like the teacher isn't going to tell you what you need to do. You're, the adult isn't going to tell you what to do. You have to be able to say, am I addicted to this thing? Do I spend too much time on social media? Am I digesting content that's healthy or harmful to me? You have that responsibility fully falls on you. You know, there aren't enough mental health professionals out here to deal with it. And the first rule of, of mental health is 
you can't help someone any any professional will tell you is you cannot help someone regardless of the information you give them the knowledge you instill in them if they do not want to help themselves it is impossible yep 100 percent. 100 percent. i think that brings us to a nice wind down on on that topic you know i want to talk about um some of the college football stuff while uh while we're on here today, because this is week one, man, I've been like anticipating this for weeks, just like soft, <laughs> soft mentioning it every week, basically for like the last three episodes. But it's here, man, like week zero happened last week. Um, I do want to mention we saw um, I don't know if anyone saw, but like I watched the recap of the USC game against San Jose State. Sorry, Pac-12 Network. I don't know. I don't know what to think. but. Um, the USC game was interesting to me. This was something I was watching because last year we saw that they had such a superpowered offense. Uh, I think the general consensus is that Caleb Williams has the opportunity this season to take another step up and legitimately be the most dominant quarterback and, and player in college football. Um, but one side of the ball does not win you a championship. And the story with USC has been that their defense has choked away game after game after game in those critical situations. We saw a San Jose State team in week zero put up 28 points against the USC defense, which to me indicates no real shift coming out of last year. So that to me was, you know, really surprising. And I wanted to get your thoughts, V, on two things. One, USC's potential and Caleb Williams' potential this season. And then two, like, like it, are they possibly ever going to be able to win a championship with this type of philosophy? History says no. Right. Um, and there's a couple thoughts on this. These, these coaches, um, and we have one at Ohio State, too, that really preaches an offensive philosophy, offense-first philosophy, drive the ball down the field. Um, and, and, and then when the defense doesn't play well, when you have, you know, 40-second drives and you put your defense on the field over and over and over again, it's, it's it's a lack of care for that side of the ball and a lack of interest in that side of the ball, really. Um, and if you look at the history of football, the teams that win championships almost always have the top defense in the country. And, and you can win with above average offense and a superior defense. You can't win with a superior offense and no defense at all. And that is kind of what we see over and over. And this is also why when you see these coaches, Bobby Petrino, Urban Meyer, um, go to the NFL level, they never succeed. Because when you get to that level, defense really does matter. It's the teams that you have to have a pretty good defense to win. And it's just it's disheartening to see these coaches that just ignore that side of the ball and don't think about the strategy and totality of winning a football game. It's like, yes, it's great. Like Lincoln Riley has had Baker Mayfield win a Heisman. Kyler Murray win a Heisman. Caleb Williams win a Heisman. But look at Kyler Murray in the NFL. Look at Baker Mayfield in the NFL. It doesn't translate. The only one that translated was Jalen Hurts. And Jalen Hurts translated because he got a combination of the Alabama philosophy and the Lincoln Riley philosophy, where I think mentally he developed because of Nick Saban 
and he functioned well within an offense of Lincoln Riley's. But this mindset of, you know, we're going to make our quarterback the superstar, that also has a cl- effect on the remaining 21 players that have to play every down. Like, if you really elevate one position to a priority level this high, what's going to motivate the cornerback to be great? If, if he is great, nobody recognizes it, right? Like, this is all psychology. And one thing I respected about, about Urban Meyer was, although he was not a defensive guy, he always made sure to recruit great players on that side of, of the ball and hire the best coaches on that side of the ball. So although Ohio, Ohio State and Florida and, and Bowling Green and Utah were all known as offense-first teams, the thing that's, that, that was different is that Urban Meyer's offense, spread offense, also was very ball control oriented. He is a more run-first spread offense guy than he is a pass-first offensive guy. And what's happening in, in college football now is it's becoming pass-first, pass-first, pass-first as a reflection. And what that's doing is creating a very, very unfair situation, I think, for defenses. It's not fair to say just say Oklahoma's defense is terrible. Their coordinator is terrible. No, part of this falls on Lincoln Riley and his scheme offensively also having a negative impact on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, when, when they do score it quickly too, it's also maybe not as good. Like being able to take the time, like you're mentioning, does make an impact. We saw it with Tennessee last season. They gassed out in their critical games toward the end of the season just because their offense was only taking like 50 seconds each possession to score. And like, yeah, it's, it's as bad of a thing to score too quickly, too often than it is to not score enough. Yeah. And you know, you talk about situational football, situational football. What are you going to do that one game that Caleb Williams is off? Like he was with Utah last year. What are you going to do? Somebody else needs to step up. And if they haven't had to step up all year, you're not going to win because one one winner one loss changes the entire dynamic of a college football season if you're one of the top rated teams and it's impossible to look at that game against a team as bad as San Jose State as you mentioned at the top of the, the top of this score 28 points so what are you going to do when you face Georgia Alabama and they 100%. they provide resistance to your offense which they haven't felt all year and the defense needs to step up and play. You're going to lose. And that's why these big 12 teams, these Pac-12 teams have not and do not win championships. They don't. 100%. And moving it forward to um, uh, Utah, Florida, this was an interesting game last year because I, I believe going into it, it was Utah ranked beneath, right? And they, they were technically an upset. Um, this season, Utah comes in preseason ranked 14. Florida is unranked going into the season. Still, I think would be a tough matchup. I think anytime you're playing, you know, either of these two teams, they're very tough teams to play. Um, you know, what's your view on Utah this season? I think it's been a pleasure watching them rise ever since we played them in the Rose Bowl now two years in a row, right? Like the, those couple of years and then just seeing them keep on growing and getting better and tougher. It's been awesome. Yeah, I mean, they're led by a great coach and, you know, it's, it's the philosophy of, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. Right. And I think there's a toughness that's, that's in, in Kyle Whittingham's offense and defensive philosophy. He recruits tough players. I don't know if the quarterback is back. 
um, from last year, but you saw it in the personality of the team. It's a whole bunch of guys with lunch pail mentalities and, and a coach who can develop and design a game plan to beat any team and to, a, to adjust and slow down a team offensively uh, enough um, to win. And the thing is, Utah does have talent. You know, they're not necessarily getting the same level of talent as everyone else, but they're well coached and well developed. Um, and I think because of that, they're always going to be a contender. They may never win a national championship because they don't get necessarily, you know, the hotshot five star prospects, but they're going to beat everybody else. Um, and that's what you saw with USC, why they beat them, um, beat them last year and why uh, Lincoln Riley has so much trouble. It's because they're better coached. 100%. Utah is, is fascinating and Cam Rising is uh, is back this year and I think I, I just love I love Utah I, I feel like they're the Ohio State of the West after the many times we've played them <laughs> um, we got to jump into the Buckeyes we're playing Indiana this week um, Indiana last year had such a huge drop off from the year before uh, I feel like this is a program that is in a weird spot it's a program I grew up really respecting and enjoying watching their games. And I just don't feel like they've really put up much competition over the past few seasons. Um, what's your view on the game? You think it's going to be, you know, kind of an easy walk in the park for Ohio state. Yeah, it definitely should be an easy walk in the park. Um, the questions around Ohio state um, continue to exist. I feel like um, at the end of life. Oh, did we name, did we name uh, QB yet? No, that's, that's, that's where I'm getting to. I feel like <laughs> um, after the way last season ended with back-to-back losses to Michigan and Georgia and, and the disappointing ways that we lost those games, both games that we could win, I thought the most important thing was there to be clarity and a, clear, a clarity in purpose and mission. And I could be wrong about everything that I'm about to say, but I think part of the hard thing here is that you have to make tough decisions, tough decisions on the defensive side of the ball, tough decisions on coaching, tough decisions on player and personnel. And the last time we had a scenario like this, and there's been a couple of times we had, we had the, the most, most um, prevalent one was Joe Germain and Stanley Jackson sharing QB duties. It doesn't work when you have to, have the entire offense adjust to two different styles of play based on who's in the system. And it also makes it predictable. So I don't, I think that a decision should have been made and a decision needs to be made because that uncertainty is going to impact the season. Historically two QB systems don't work unless the second QB worked with urban Meyer in Florida in 2006 um, simply because everybody knew Tim Tebow just came in in the goal line packages and short yardage. Chris Leak was still the quarterback of that team. Um, there was just a special package for Tebow. Uh, when you're really talking about splitting the duties between two quarterbacks, I don't think that that's, that's the right way to approach this thing. And that indecisiveness is, is something that I'm continued to worry about with um, with Ryan Day and this program is we have the talent. We have the offensive firepower. Questions are, have we made the adjustments on defense? And then are we willing to make the tough decisions? Because the tough decisions 
are the difference between us beating Michigan and losing Michigan, losing to Michigan. They are the difference between us beating Georgia and losing to Georgia, you know, and the fact that this decision can't be made gives me concern for that reason. Yeah, I think it's interesting. There is the possibility that the decision has been made, but it's just not being shared as well. Um, which could be could be part of the narrative here because I felt like when you went right, didn't you feel like a decision was pretty clear? Yeah, I mean, it, it seemed like the decision the decision was pretty clear at that point. But I mean, from all intents and purposes, um, Devin's had a great, great, uh, great camp, great and great in practice. And I think there are some fears around the offensive line and their ability to protect and Kyle McCord's lack of mobility. Um, and then Devin just giving the team more options and more, more athletic option at quarterback. And it really comes down to is Kyle McCord as good of a passer as CJ? Cause CJ wasn't necessarily the most mobile quarterback either, but there are questions. And the fact that it's not clear, um, is, is interesting. And then also kind of the, the, the decision of, of both quarterbacks are going to be played is what's being communicated now is both quarterbacks are going to play in this game and we're going to see how this plays out this also has a collateral effect on recruiting right if Kyle McCord's chosen versus Devin Brown how does that impact Aaron Noland and the other quarterbacks we have because now you have a quarterback that's probably going to be there for the next three seasons it does impact it has an impact on recruiting and you wonder if those things are being thought about too, which would be very strange, you need to put the best quarterback out there um, for your team. Hey, can you explain the three season thing? Because Devin Brown's a, a oh, because because basically you're saying it would be McCord, then it would be Devin Brown for the next three years. No, I'm saying if Devin Brown comes in this year, mm-hmm. it, it impacts the recruitment of Eric Nolan and the other QBs because then we have a we know that this is going to be a solid starter for the next two or three years versus a Kyle McCord, who I think would probably leave the one year, one year deal. Yeah. And, 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 you know, this is with the transfer portal and stuff. We are going to see if Kyle McCord is not the starter, he is going to transfer. I don't know what the same is true for Devin Brown, but I do think that these QBs need to think about these things. If somebody makes a choice, you've got to go somewhere where you get the opportunity to play. Yeah. Yeah, that's well said. And I think when I'm watching this game this weekend, I'm not necessarily interested in the offense as much. I think that this is a year for us. Like it, it reminds me a lot of um, the the early 2000s kind of Ohio State, where it's like if the defense really takes that step up, we have a real shot here this year. And I think like this entire game, what I'm going to be looking for is for us not to do what USC did, not to let them put. 28 points up on us, you know, for no reason, but to really make it contested, to see an aggressive defense that's dictating the pace of the game, that's covering the spots, maybe generating a turnover or two. That, that to me is really, you know, what success looks like in a game like this. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we're going to have a very strong defensive line. Our, our safety's room um, looks great. I think we have the right coach in place uh, there. I like him. Um, but I, you know, the questions are at linebacker and at corner two areas of historic strength at Ohio state. If you were to tell me 10 years ago that 10 years from now, Ohio state would have questions at cornerback and linebacker. I would laugh at you. 
but the reality is we do have those question marks, you know, and they need to be answered. You know, we have a very expensive defensive coordinator, Jim Knowles, who was, who was brought with much fanfare based on one season in the Big 12. And he's got to show and prove because once you get paid, if you're getting an assistant coach getting paid like a head coach and your team doesn't perform or your side of the ball doesn't perform, you got to get out of there. Just if you, you know, it's just what it is. And, and hopefully he steps. That's, that's what I love about sports in general is that it is a meritocracy. It's one of the few meritocracies that still exists. There can be politics involved in everything, but at the end of the day, it's mostly a meritocracy. Um, you know, now Jim knows if he gets fired, he'll, he'll leave with a lot of a nice big paycheck. But the reality is you, you have to perform according to what you pay and what you're paid. And, you know, uh, as likable of a guy as he seems, I love his press conferences. I love what he says in interviews. It needs to reflect on the field. And in that, in, in the Georgia game, in the Michigan game, our defense looked like trash. I, and I do want to mention on, on the offensive side, too, this is the first game we're going to watch with Heartline play calling. I think that's an interesting shift that we're going to see. So one of the criticisms we had last year was just, I think everyone was annoyed at the screen passes and, and that just general kind of like default Ryan Day playbook instead of running the ball. But you look at Heartline's history, he played here during a different era, during the Trestle era. So he's conditioned and grew up and played within a system that was way more ground and pound, way more about physical toughness. And he was a receiver that thrived within a system like that. So I am curious what his play calling will look like. I suspect that he's probably going to call more running plays on average than we did last year. And I think it'll be more of a conservative style of football that leverages folks like Marvin Harrison Jr., when they can get open and, you know, larger style of plays as opposed to what we've seen the last couple of years, which has been, uh, you know, more rapid, shorter passes. That's, that's kind of my feel with him. But what, what do you think on the offensive side, especially now that we have new play calling? Again, it's a reflection of what my overall concern with the program is a lack of clear decision-making because yes, you, what you heard was that Ryan day was going to relinquish play calling, but in his most recent interview, he said we're going to share play calling responsibilities. And I think that's a very dangerous path to go down where you've got two different people making decisions. And there was, there's urban ran into this problem uh, late in his career where he was essentially overriding and vetoing some of the play calls because he still felt like he should be in control of that. And the fact that Brian hasn't created a create a clear delineation is again something that I'm worried about is what is our philosophy going to be? If you, if you, if you're going to give somebody power, you need to give them power. Like, and I always think that this is a mistake that's, that's, that's made is, yeah, you can be involved in the development of game plan, game, game play. And this is also what we struggle with on the defensive side of the ball. When we had um, in the last couple of seasons of, of switching play callers consistently, there are a lot of question marks about the philosophy and strategy that's going into this season. I don't think that it needs to be a shared responsibility because all it does is create conflict and uncertainty to these players. And again, you're dealing with 18, 19, 20 year olds. They need to have a clear sense of purpose and clear sense of understanding. If, if, if Heartline's calling plays and, and we're, and 
we're going one way and then day jumps in and overrides an audibles to pass. These are things that were happening with Urban where a play would be sent in and he would veto it and, and audible to a run. Like that's what's scary about share play calling. I just don't like that. Do you think that in this new setup, we'll see a sh- like a shift in the style of plays, number one? And and what do you do you anticipate like with with a heart line, like what kind of play caller do you think we would have if he were fully making the decision? It's it's tough to know, right? Because and then his nature, we haven't seen it. We haven't seen it. And you would think that his nature is to make sure his receiver room shines because he's still a wide receivers coach. Um, I, we have no idea where this is going to go, but I think anybody who knows how Ohio State is built this year and how Ohio State, we would have a, a national championship with Ryan Day um, if we would run the ball consistently and then let the pass be an option. Um, start, lead with the run, go into play action, go into passing. We are very, very predictable that we're a pass-first team and the running game is like a byproduct that we, we choose every now and again. The truth is that between uh, Travion Henderson um, and, and, and the two other backs, um, we should be having 30 to 40 carries between them every single game. You don't have talent like that and not utilize it. Um, and Tony Alfred's one of the best running back coaches and developers in the country. Let the man shine. Let his talent shine. Um, I really hope that Ryan Day and um, and 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 uh, Hartline really do what's best for the team and not lean toward their personal likeness of 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 wanting to throw the ball um, and 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 that lead to problems down the line for us. Yeah, it's a great point on the running back room. I think we have one of the strongest running back rooms in the country, and so it would be great to see them utilized. I think in a year where there's offensive line concerns. That's probably the biggest challenge in it. And then also in a year where we just saw this controversy in the NFL with the running backs not getting paid, being devalued. I think it does. It does. Um, if I was a college running back at the level of talent of Travion Henderson, that would create concerns for me in terms of should I, should I just be a running back or like, can I find a way to demonstrate I can catch the ball? Yeah, and honestly, like, you you know, we talked about this earlier, right? Like, if there are question marks on our defense, would you rather have them play five less possessions and give the opponent five less opportunities to score a touchdown? Or do you want to give them five more opportunities? And then also, there's nothing that makes a defense happier than seeing a long, sustained drive where they get to sit and be rested versus you know, a one minute drive and they have to go back on the field, a three minute drive and they have to go back on the field. Like, you know, this is something that's very basic um, that I think needs to be adjusted for. Yeah. It'll be really interesting. So um, let's do a, let's do a score prediction V what you got. Uh, Ohio state will win this game handily. Um, That's not what we're looking for here as a win or a loss. We're looking for, um, we're looking for, what happens in the quarterback room and how our defense plays and then what the play calling and strategy looks like in that game. Are we going to, because we're such a dominant team, just try to run up the score and have these fancy plays? Or are we going to establish 
what we need to do to beat Michigan from game one and that toughness that's required. Uh, because Jim Harbaugh is not a good coach. He's not, he can't beat anybody in big games except for Ryan Day. And he's shown that in every bowl game, in every big game that he's coached, both at Stanford and Michigan. These last two losses are because we lack toughness. It's not because, and if we are being outcoached by Jim Harbaugh for a third time, then we've got questions to answer and Ryan Day needs to answer them. Yeah. So you got a, you got a number? Uh, I have, uh, we'll probably put up 49, 49 to, uh, 10. Let me just throw that up there. What do you have? Nice. I got a uh, same thing, kind of Ohio state 42, 14. I think it'll be probably an explosive first half. We'll probably get to, um, other kind of backups and stuff in the second half. And, um, I think it'll be interesting to see the defense the most like that. That's where my curiosity is. It is Indiana, you know, not, not the strongest team, not going to be the best example of what our potential is, but I think it'll be a, a good watch anyway. After watching Notre Dame, maybe I am really worried about this Notre Dame matchup, you know, Notre Dame's good, man. The, They're really they they fix their QB situation. This QB looks really good. Um, they're well coached, um, and Freeman is a good defensive coach. So I think this game, they played us close last year when they weren't really that good. Uh, that's the game that's going to determine Ohio State season, um, and that's where I'm worried about going with the two QB system going into that game. I feel like we need to have a clear plan and also a clear plan as far as as play calling going into that game. Yeah. Yeah, great point. Well, on that note, I think it brings us to the end of this episode. Um, just a reminder to everyone listening to stay moving, be you, you as fly. Pilot boys out.